Hey everyone, it's me, TV. Just reminding you, we have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com, check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean, look cool, have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you. Greetings, listeners, and welcome to 2022. This month, January, we will be covering 20, not 22, science fiction stories of all different sorts. I hope you enjoy them as much as I've been enjoying my copper cow coffee in this new year. Why, yes, I had some churro this morning as I was getting Dusseldorf and Barbacoa. No, that's not my children's real names. Don't worry, I don't have Portland names for my children. Uh, uh, sorry to break character, but some people are like, is that really your kids' names? No, no. But they do like watching me uh, make copper cow coffee. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm lactose intolerant, but their mom is not. And she has been getting the mocha, which, uh, it is a chocolate condensed milk. I mean, it's, it's sweetened condensed milk with chocolate in it and the original, uh, no flavors black coffee, uh, copper cow. And you know what? Check it out. Check out the show notes. Get some copper cow. But more importantly, check out this science fiction and we'll see you in a bit. All right. Here we go. The Clean and Wholesome Land by Ralph Sholto. Utopia had been reached. All the problems of mankind had been solved. It was the perfect state. If you doubted it, you died. While Professor Cargill lectured from the rostrum, Neil Pardue prowled the dark auditorium. This, he knew, was the place to find them. Here was where they whispered and plotted and schemed, feeling safe in this pure, hardcore of patriotism. Safe because Cargill was the director of education in the new state, just as Pardew was the director of public security. Safe because Cargill's lectures were given before a command audience, with attendance strictly mandatory. The insistence was not really necessary, of course. The people would have come to hear Cargill regardless. He was a compelling, magnetic personality. Even now, his great voice was booming out. And upon this anniversary of the new state, we can look out with great pride upon a clean and wholesome land. With strong emotion, we can look upon the physical manifestation of our glorious principles that only through self-effacement, through fantastic love for the state, can the individual come to complete physical and mental fruition. Upon this anniversary, we see our enemies, both within and without, broken and completely subjugated. This was the place they whispered and schemed and plotted. Pardo prowled the aisles, his eyes piercing the darkness, spotting them, cataloging them. And thus he came upon Emil Hillerman, his deputy of vital intelligence sitting dutifully in the end seat of a middle aisle. Hillerman's thick lips hung lax, his eyes squinted laboriously as he sought to follow the thread of Cargill's lecture. 
Pardo tapped Hillerman on the shoulder. The latter started guiltily. He whirled and sought to identify Pardo in the semi-darkness. Pardo said, Please step outside with me. I have some questions. There was fear in Hillerman's bearing as he got clumsily to his feet and followed Pardo. But none of Cargill's speech was missed. A battery of loudspeakers carried it even into the foyer where Pardo stopped and turned on Hillerman. He regarded the man through cold, calculating eyes. He seemed to be both enjoying Hillerman's discomfort and also listening to Cargill's booming words. These pale weaklings, these traitors with twitching muscles and twitching minds, who skulk in dark places, have been finally and decisively defeated, even their vaunted leader. What have you been doing? Pardo asked, relative to Carl Leinster. The frightened Hillerman licked his fat lower lip as he sought for words. Everything, everything possible. But Leinster is clever. You know that. You know that yourself. Pardo's eyes bored into those of the intelligence director. They were noted for their icy penetration, but upon this night they were like steel knives. It was as though he surveyed Hillerman from behind the bulwark of some new and hostile information. Even as he stared, Cargill was booming from the rostrum. Carl Leinster, their peerless leader, and Cargill's voice crackled with the inflection of pure contempt. A degenerate, a dope addict whose greatness lay only in the realms of his sensual dreams. A weak, pitiful figure bereft of followers, cringing alone in. When Pardo spoke, his voice held a new sharpness to complement the new ice in his eyes. He said, In half an hour I'm attending a meeting of the council. They will want a report. What about Leinster? Hillerman looked quickly to right and left, then back at his chief. He hesitated as though fearing the consequences of what he was about to reveal. You know of the Wyckoff chemical transformation process? Certainly I know of it, Pardo blazed. What about it? I, I, but Hillerman seemed to lose the courage he'd screwed up to continue in this direction. He straightened and a little of the hangdog servility dropped away. I'm doing all that is humanly possible to apprehend Leinster. All that any man could do. The secret jails are full. My interrogators work night and day. Even a superficial check on my records would show that more has been done in the last six months and is being done now than... Pardue raised an impatient hand, opening a gap of silence into which the voice of Cargill poured. Land in which the voice of dissenter is not heard, in which Leinster and men of his despicable ilk are forever crushed and beaten. Pardue was scowling. Almost unconsciously, he had held the pause, with hand upraised, until Cargill finished his passage. As Cargill stopped for breath, Pardo jerked his hand down sharply, completing the gesture. I have no time for any more of this, and I resent having to seek you out. Next time, report to my office as is proper and keep me posted as to your activities. Next... Pardo eyed Hillerman for one blank moment and allowed the threat to reflect clearly that possibly there would not be any more next times. Then he turned and strolled swiftly from the foyer. Cargill's voice had hardly faded when he picked it up again on his car radio. It was a foregone conclusion that every radio in the land would be tuned to the lecture. 
So great was Cargill's popularity that every citizen traveling in a car would wish to hear it and turn on his receiver. It was foolish not to have a radio properly tuned when Cargill spoke. He was saying, And so, under the banner of complete solidarity, we will march forward, a solid phalanx against which no force can stand. Now that our own house is swept clean of vermin, rid forever of carrion like Leinster and his ilk, we can. Pardue had traveled swiftly through the streets at high speed reserved for higher servants of the new state. The lesser servants of the new state had learned caution, and thus no regrettable deaths or maimings occurred. The lesser servants have grown wary and fleet of foot. Pardot switched off his motor but left his audio blaring. Cargill's voice followed him up the broad steps of the executive building and was just fading out when Pardot was able to pick it up again from the loudspeaker under the great arches. He entered the building and traversed the vast foyer to a niche which housed a private elevator. He entered the lift, deserting it on the ninth floor where he entered an unobtrusive door and joined a group which consisted of the new state's well-guarded pool of power and brains. There was Blanchard of Finance, Keeley, Director of Foreign Education, Masichek, Overlord of the Nation's Larder, and seven others. When Pardot entered, all conversation stopped, and every man looked up from a luxurious overstuffed chair. Pardot must certainly have swelled inwardly with pride at this unconscious tribute. It was well known that he held a key position on the chessboard of politics. His was, in reality, the most important job of all. It was to Pardue that this powerful group of men looked for that which they most treasured, their own personal safety. A chair was waiting for Pardue. He said, "'I'm sorry to be late, gentlemen,' I have been on a personal tour of inspection. I'm sure you will forgive me, however. I have a most interesting report. He seated himself, timing the action so it coincided with the ebb of applause coming over the speaker. Applause from the loyal multitudes who had just heard Professor Cargill and his lecture. As it was now permissible, Blanchard reached under the table and snapped a button. The speaker went silent. An interesting report, Keeley asked. Amazingly so, Pardo said. I have just unearthed a traitor, a traitor in a high place. Every man in the group strove not to react, and this striving was in itself a reaction. Most interesting, Blanchard murmured. Are you ready to name names? That is my intention, but in order to forestall a great many questions, let me give you a complete background. Liederman, ambassador without portfolio, and very close to the man of almost sacred name who never attended these meetings, felt strong enough to evince impatience. The name, man, first name, then the details. Pardue smiled coldly. Very well. The name is Carl Linster. Liederman sprang from his chair, his face bordering on purple. Is this a joke, Pardo? We all know Leinster is the art traitor of our times, the leader of the resistance movement. Talk sense. Pardot, not in the least disconcerted, smiled coldly. I'm sorry. Perhaps I should have said Emil Hillerman, my deputy of vital intelligence, the man who holds immeasurable power in his two hands. Blanchard was not given to outbursts, but his lips were grim as he said, We're waiting for you to talk sense, Pardot.
The confusion comes from your not allowing me to tell it as I wished. There is a gap between Leinster and Hillerman, one which, with your permission, I will fill. Talk, man, talk. You have all heard of Formula 652, known also as the Wyckoff chemical transformation process. There were expressions of both understanding and bewilderment. Noting these, Pardot said, For those of you who haven't made a point of looking into the thing, I'll explain. Wyckoff, in case you don't recall, was a chemical engineer of more than average ability who stumbled onto this formula before he died, most regretfully, four years ago in 1984. Lederman continued to scowl. We all know each other, Pardo. Call a spade a spade. Wyckoff was a reactionary scoundrel whom you did away with for reasons of security. Precisely, Pardo said. In its essence, the formula is a process for taking over a man's brain, his body, his personality. You mean? Pardo refused to be interrupted. We were of the opinion that Wyckoff, though he and Leinster were great friends, was not able to impart his knowledge to the latter. We took him into custody shortly after he perfected the formula and were fortunate in persuading him to give it to us. But he gave it to Leinster also? We were certain, at the time of his death, that he had not been able to do that. We are still certain. Keeley, with a gesture, requested the floor. I wonder if you could go into a little more detail concerning the formula. For those of us who... Of course, Pardo said. The formula is a combination of six chemicals, and the process of transformation is relatively simple, yet highly dangerous to both subjects involved. It means sure death for the proposed host, if not delicately handled, will also result in death for the usurper. The transformation requires three hours to perform. Once completed successfully, the usurper can never return to his own body. It must be destroyed. Also, the mentality of the host vanishes after it is pushed from its original brain tissue through the influence of the formula. Then if Wyckoff didn't give the formula to Leinster, it was stolen from our vaults, or wherever it was kept? Exactly. Certain investigations I have made prove beyond doubt that Leinster got to my deputy Hillerman. I never considered Hillerman very bright, but I thought him to be honest and loyal. Beyond all doubt, with his aid, Leinster stole the formula, possibly got it verbally, and used it to take Hillerman's body from him. Pardo smiled grimly. Therefore, gentlemen, we have a traitor in a high place, my deputy of vital intelligence. Pardo sat silent now, seeming to enjoy the fear he had engendered in his colleagues. Sat silent until Lederman said, You've arrested him, of course. No, I have not. Then get at it, man, get at it. I have no intention of arresting Hillerman. Lederman's eyes widened as did those of the rest of the company. But Blanchard, even under the impact of such a bombshell, had the presence of mind to glance at his watch. Immediately he snapped on the loudspeaker. The voice of Professor Cargill blared forth, and upon this anniversary of the new state, we can look with pride upon a clean and wholesome land. It was the rebroadcast from recordings of Cargill's speech, and no man in his right mind would have refrained from tuning it in because everyone wanted to hear it at least twice. Lederman, 
almost apoplectic, ignored the speech. Not arresting him? Are you mad? I am quite sane, and the situation is well in hand. Pardo grinned, and there was wickedness in the grin, wickedness and intelligence. As I said before, Hillerman was not a smart man. His job was too much for him, and I would have been faced soon with the necessity of replacing him regardless. Leinster, on the other hand, is of grade A intellect. But gentlemen, he is frightened, badly frightened in his new environment, and in order to ensure his own safety, is doing an excellent job. Ever since the transformation, that department has gained in efficiency until it now ranks as one of the highest in our entire government. Slowly, Pardo's strategy dawned on the group. Blanchard suddenly smiled. Then Pardo scowled and went on with a new and sudden ferocity. I have the proof, and I have Leinster Hillerman under my palm. So he stays, continues to do a good job for us. But he'll be watched, gentlemen. He won't be able to go to the bathroom without being under surveillance. We will learn a great deal from him. All we need to know. Then you'll arrest him? The boss of the state larder wanted to know. Pardo came to his feet. His fist slammed down on the table. I shall not arrest him, ever. When the time comes, I shall personally shoot him down in the street, like a dog. There will come a day, gentlemen, when you will witness this act of vengeance, when I shall make such an example of Leinster Hillerman as the resistance will not forget, a moral crumbling example, I promise you, in which Leinster and his ilk are forever crushed and beaten, the speaker said. Blanchard took the floor. Gentlemen, I move to vote thanks and confidence for our colleague, Neil Pardo. The director of public security stood at attention and essayed a sharp military bow. It was a moment of rare triumph. Thank you, gentlemen, he said. An hour later, Leinster Pardo was alone in his apartments. He stripped off his uniform with an air of grim satisfaction. While he undressed, he thought of the martyrs to the cause, the men who had died. He thought of Wyckoff and wished Wyckoff could have had the pleasure of knowing who had usurped the body of Neil Pardo, Pardo the Butcher, the infamous Pardo. From the speaker came the third and final rebroadcast of Cargill's speech. A clean and wholesome land. A clean and wholesome land, Leinster murmured and the tone of his voice was a prayer. End of Section 3 Off Course by Mac Reynolds Shore and Begora, it was a great day for the earth. The first envoy from another world was about to speak. That is, if he could forget that horse for a minute. First on the scene were Larry Dermott and Tim Casey of the State Highway Patrol. They assumed they were witnessing the crash of a new type of Air Force plane and slipped and skidded desperately across the field to within 30 feet of the strange craft, only to discover that the landing had been made without accident. Patrolman Dermott shook his head. They're getting queerer looking every year. Get a load of it. No wheels, no propeller, no cockpit. They left the car and made their way toward the strange egg-shaped vessel. Tim Casey loosened his thirty-eight in his holster and said, Sure, I'm beginning to wonder if it's one of ours. No insignia, and... 
A circular door slid open at that point, and Damri Tass stepped out, yawning. He spotted them, smiled, and said, Glork. They gaped at him. Glork is right, Dermot swallowed. Tim Casey closed his mouth with an effort. Do you mind the color of his face? he blurted. How could I help it? Damri Tass rubbed a blue-nailed pink hand down his purplish countenance and yawned again. Goromadigan Horp's radium, he said. Patrolman Dermot and Patrolman Casey shot stares at each other. "'Tis double talk he's after giving us, Casey said. Damry Tass frowned. Hamara? he asked. Larry Dermot pushed his cap to the back of his head. That doesn't sound like any language I've even heard about. Damry Tass grimaced turned and re-entered his spacecraft to emerge in half a minute with his hands full of contraption. He held a box-like arrangement under his left arm. In his right hand were two metal caps connected to the box by wires. While the patrolman watched him, he set the box on the ground, twirled two dials, and put one of the caps on his head. He offered the other to Larry Dermot. His desire was obvious. Trained to grasp a situation and immediately respond in manner best suited to protect the welfare of the people of New York State, Dermot cleared his throat and said, Tim, take over while I report. Hey, Casey protested, but his fellow minion had left. Mandaya, Damri Tass told Casey, holding out the metal cap. Faith, and do I look balmy? Casey told him. I wouldn't be putting that dingus on my head for all the colines in Ireland. Mandaya, the stranger said impatiently. Be Jesus, Casey snorted. You can't. Dermot called from the car. Tim, the captain says to humor this guy. We're going to keep him here until the officials arrive. Tim Casey closed his eyes and groaned. Humor him, he's after saying. Orders it is, he shouted back. Sure, and did you tell him he's in Technicolor? Bagora, he looks like a man from Mars. That's what they think, Larry yelled, and the governor's on his way. We're to do everything possible, short of violence, to keep this character here. Humor him, Tim. The merry task snapped, pushing the cap into Casey's reluctant hands. Muttering his protests, Casey lifted it gingerly and placed it on his head. Not feeling any immediate effect, he said, There, dissatisfied ye are now? I'm supposing... The alien stooped down and flicked a switch on the little box. It hummed gently. Tim Casey suddenly shrieked and sat down on the stubble and grass of the field. Begora, he yelped. I've been mothered. He tore the cap from his head. His companion came running. What's the matter, Tim? he shouted. Damry Tass removed the metal cap from his own head. Sure, and nothing is after being the matter with him, he said. Evidently, the boy's never been a-wearin' of a curate helmet afore. Twill hurt him not at all. You can talk, Dermot blurted, skidding to a stop. Damari Tass shrugged. Faith and why not? As I was after sayin', I shared the curate helmet with Tim Casey. Patrolman Dermot glared at him unbelievingly. You learned the language just by sticking that Rube Goldberg deal on Tim's head? Sure, and why not? Dermot muttered, and with it he has to pick up the corniest brogue west of Dublin. Tim Casey got to his feet indignantly. 
I'm after resentin' that, Larry Dermot. Sure, and the way we talk in Ireland is. Demary Tass interrupted, pointing to a bedraggled horse that made its way to within fifty feet of the vessel. Now what could that be after bein'? The patrolman followed his stare. It's a horse. What else? A horse? Larry Dermot looked again, just to make sure. Yeah, not much of a horse, but a horse. Demary Tass sighed ecstatically. And just what is a horse, if I may be so bold as to be askin'? It's an animal you ride on. The alien tore his gaze from the animal to look his disbelief at the other. Are you after meaning that you climb upon the creature's back and ride him? Faith now, quit your blarney. He looked at the horse again, then down at his equipment. Bogora, he muttered. I'll share the carrot helmet with the creature. Hey, hold it, Dermot said anxiously. He was beginning to feel like a character in a shaggy dog story. Interest in the horse was ended with the sudden arrival of a helicopter. It swooped down on the field and settled within twenty feet of the alien craft. Almost before it had touched, the door was flung open and the flying windmill disgorged two bestarred and efficient-looking army officers. Casey and Dermot snapped them a salute. The senior general didn't take his eyes from the alien and the spacecraft as he spoke and they budded quite as effectively as they had those of the patrolmen when they'd first arrived on the scene. I'm Major General Browning, he rapped. I want a police cordon thrown up around this, sir, vessel. No newsmen, no sightseers, nobody without my permission. As soon as Army personnel arrives, we'll take over completely. Yes, sir, Larry Dermot said. I've got a report on the radio that the governor's on his way, sir. How about him? The general muttered something under his breath. Then, when the governor arrives, let me know. Otherwise, nobody gets through. Demary Tass said, Faith and what goes on? The general's eyes bugged still further. He talks, he accused. Yes, sir, Dermot said. He had some kind of machine. He put it over Tim's head, and seconds later he could talk. Nonsense, the general snapped. Further discussion was interrupted by the screaming arrival of several motorcycle patrolmen, followed by three heavily laden patrol cars. Overhead, pursuit planes zoomed in and began darting about nervously above the field. Sure, and it's quite a reception I'm after getting, Demary Tass said. He yawned. But what I'm a wantin' is a chance to get some sleep. Faith, and I've been awake for almost a decal. Demary Tass was hurried, via helicopter to Washington, where he disappeared for several days, being held incommunicado while White House, Pentagon, State Department, and Congress tried to figure out just what to do with him. Never in the history of the planet had such a furor arisen. Thus far, no newspaper men had been allowed within speaking distance. Administration higher-ups were being subjected to a volcano of editorial heat, but the longer the space alien was discussed, the more they viewed with alarm the situation his arrival had precipitated. There were angles that hadn't at first been evident. Obviously, he was from some civilization far beyond that of Earth's. That was the rub. No matter what he said, it would shake governments, possibly overthrow social systems, perhaps even destroy established religious concepts. 
but they couldn't keep him under wraps indefinitely. It was the United Nations that cracked the Iron Curtain. Their demands that the alien be heard before their body was too strong and had too much public opinion behind them to be ignored. The White House yielded and the date was set for the visitor to speak before the assembly. Excitement, anticipation, blanketed the world. Shepherds in Sinkang, multimillionaires in Switzerland, fakers in Pakistan, gonchos in Argentine, were raised to a zenith of expectation. Panhandlers debated the message to come with pedestrians. Jinrakisha men argued it with their passengers. Miners discussed it deep beneath the surface. Pilots argued with their co-pilots thousands of feet above. It was the most universally awaited event of the ages. By the time the delegates from every nation, tribe, religion, class, color, and race had gathered in New York to receive the message from the stars, the majority of Earth had decided that Demeritas was the plenipotentiary of a super-civilization which had been viewing developments on this planet with misgivings. It was thought this other civilization had advanced greatly beyond Earth's, and that the problems besetting us, social, economic, scientific, had been solved by the super-civilization. Obviously, then, Demeritas had come, an advisor from a benevolent and friendly people, to guide the world aright. And nine-tenths of the population of Earth stood ready and willing to be guided. The other tenth liked things as they were, and were quite convinced that the space envoy would upset their apple carts. Villiamar Anderson, Secretary General of the UN, was to introduce the space emissary. Can you give me an idea at all of what he's like? he asked nervously. President McCord was upset as the Dane. He shrugged in agitation. I know almost as little as you do. Sir Alfred Oxford protested. But my dear chap, you've had him for almost two weeks. Certainly in that time. The President snapped back. You probably won't believe this, but he's been asleep until yesterday. When he first arrived, he told us he hadn't slept for a decal, whatever that is. So we held off our discussion with him until morning. Well, he didn't wake in the morning, nor the next. Six days later, fearing something was wrong, we woke him. What happened? Sir Alfred asked. The President showed embarrassment. He used some rather ripe Irish profanity on us, rolled over, and went back to sleep. Virgil Moore Anderson asked, Well, what happened yesterday? We actually haven't had time to question him. Among other things, there's been some controversy about whose jurisdiction he comes under. The State Department claims the Army shouldn't. The Secretary General sighed deeply. Just what did he do? The Secret Service reports he spent the day whistling Mother McCree and playing with his dog, cat, and mouse. Dog, cat, and mouse? I say, blurted Sir Alfred. The President was defensive. He had to have some occupation, and he seems to be particularly interested in our animal life. He wanted a horse, but compromised for the others. I understand he insists all three of them come with him wherever he goes. I wish we knew what he was going to say, Anderson worried. Here he comes, said Sir Alfred. Surrounded by FBI men, Demeritas was ushered to the speaker's stand. 
He had a kitten in his arms. A Scotty followed him. The alien frowned worriedly. Sure, he said. And what can all this be? Is some ordinance I've been after breaking? McCord, Sir Alfred, and Anderson hastened to reassure him and made him comfortable in a chair. Viljolmar Anderson faced the thousands in the audience and held up his hands, but it was ten minutes before he was able to quiet the cheering, stamping delegates from all earth. Finally, fellow Terrans, I shall not take your time for a lengthy introduction of the envoy from the stars. I will only say that, without doubt, this is the most important moment in the history of the human race. We will now hear from the first being to come to Earth from another world. He turned and gestured to Damari Tass, who hadn't been paying overmuch attention to the chairman in view of some dog and cat hostilities that had been developing about his feet. But now the alien's purplish face faded into a light blue. He stood and said hoarsely, Faith, and what was that last you said? Viljalmar Anderson repeated, we will now hear from the first being ever to come to Earth from another world. The face of the alien went lighter blue. Sure, and you wouldn't just be a frightened in a body, would you? You don't claim to tell me this planet isn't after being a member of the Galactic League? Anderson's face was blank. Galactic League? Kushla Makri, Damari Tass moaned. I've gone and put me foot in it again. I'll be after getting cared for this. Sir Alfred was on his feet. I don't understand. Do you mean you aren't an envoy from another planet? Demary Tass held his head in his hands and groaned. An envoy, he's saying, and myself only a second-rate collector of specimens for the Carthus Zoo. He straightened and started off the speaker stand. Sure, and I must blast off immediately. Things were moving fast for President McCord, but already an edge of relief was manifesting itself. Taking the initiative, he said, Of course, of course, if that is your desire. He signaled to the bodyguard who had accompanied the alien to the assemblage. A dull roar was beginning to emanate from the thousands gathered in the tremendous hall, murmuring, questioning, disbelieving. Bill Jamar Anderson felt that he must say something. He extended a detaining hand. Now you are here, he said urgently, even though by mistake. Before you go, can't you give us some brief word? Our world is in chaos. Many of us have lost faith. Perhaps. Damari Tass shook off the restraining hand. Do I look daft? Bagori, I should have been a knowing something was queer. All your weapons and your strange ideas. Faith, I wouldn't be surprised if you hadn't yet established a planet-wide government. Sure, and I'll go still further. You probably have wars on this benighted world. No wonder it is you haven't been invited to join the Galactic League and take your place among the civilized planets. He hustled from the rostrum and made his way, still surrounded by guards, to the door by which he had entered. The dog and the cat trotted after, undismayed by the freer about them. They arrived about four hours later at the field on which he had landed, and the alien from space hurried toward his craft, still muttering. He had been accompanied by a general and by the president, but all the way he had refrained from speaking. He scurried from the car and toward the spacecraft. 
President McCord said, You've forgotten your pets. We would be glad if you would accept them as... The alien's face faded a light blue again. Faith, and I'd almost forgotten, he said. If I'd take a creature from his quarantine planet, my name be Nork. Keep your dog and your kitty. He shook his head sadly and extracted a mouse from a pocket. And this amazing little creature as well. They followed him to the spacecraft. Just before entering, he spotted the bedraggled horse that had been present on his landing. A longing expression came over his highly colored face. Just one thing, he said. Faith now, were they pulling my leg when they said you were after riding on the back of those things? The president looked at the woebegone nag. It's a horse, he said, surprised. Man has been riding them for centuries. Demary Tass shook his head. Sure, and twould have been my making if I could have taken one back to Carthus. He entered his vessel. The others drew back, out of range of the expected blast, and watched, each with his own thoughts, as the first visitor from space hurriedly left Earth. End of section 4